0: This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I am your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion-Graded Reader Series, Chinese blogger, and his kid-tested, mother-approved. My co-host is John Pasden, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese grammar wiki, sinosplice.com, and pairs well with red wine. Why should you learn Chinese? Everyone has their own reasons, but you must have a reason. John and I discuss the importance of motivation in learning Chinese and talk about the different reasons that people have. On top of that, we'll give you tips on how to find your own motivation and discover new reasons to progress down your road to fluency. Guest interview is with Teresa Munford from England who started learning Chinese over 40 years ago, right after the Cultural Revolution, and spent many years teaching Chinese. All this and more, let's get to it. Hey, guys, I'm Jared Turner. Hey, guys, I'm John Pasden. And this is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. I think, right? Should be. All right, today we are podcast number 19. Before we get into our topic today, we have a review. All right, let's hear it. This review comes from Feng Qiuping, Uh, And I assume he's a native English speaker because it's from the United States of America. He says, this is informational and inspiration. Five-star rating. Love this podcast. At first, I was a little disappointed that it wasn't a Chinese learning podcast. But after learning, I really like that it isn't another Chinese learning podcast. It's a learn-to-learn Chinese podcast. I find the interviews with the people that have become proficient in the language really inspire me. If they can do it, then I can do it also. I would be remiss if I didn't give a huge shout out to the Manor Companion graded readers. I bought Mimi Huayuan when it first came out. I wait somewhat impatiently for each new book to come out. More level two and three, please. Because of these books, my reading, as well as my speaking, and because of the audio versions of the books, thank you very much. My listening has greatly improved. you. Hey, thanks a lot, Feng Ping.
1: Thanks, man. And believe me, we are also very impatiently awaiting the new books. <laughs> John, you want to give us a quick update on that? Oh man. The, th- the thing about creating books, you know, and editing is like you're almost done, like you get to ninety-five percent, and like the last five percent takes so much longer. Then you get to ninety eight percent and it slows down even more to like finish that last two percent. And then when you finally like push through to the finish line, there's still like one or two typos that you somehow missed after checking the text a million times. So uh, uh that's the exhausting nature of this gonna kind of work. But, um, the good news is that you know we 're like ninety five percent done with our final book, so it should take another six months then right no no we're i 'm not going to give dates, but we're we 're getting really close
0: yeah we, we are getting close, and as you can see, we just rolled out our third breakthrough level book, so we have two more on the breakthrough level that are coming out, and then we 're going to be shifting focus to some other higher level books, so stay tuned. they are coming so today, our topic that we 're discussing why do people want to learn Mandarin? This was something that was brought up to us. It's like, well, let's talk a little bit today about some of the motivations. Like, why are you learning Mandarin? And if anyone who's been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you'll see that when I interview someone, I always lead out with this question and say, hey, why did you start learning Chinese? What prompted that whole big decision of your life?
1: And so after interviewing all these people, what's your sense that the answers tend to be all different or is there a trend?
0: Well, I think this conversation is going to end right where I'm going to start here, but I'm going to say that everyone has to have their own individual motivation and everyone's motivation seems a little bit different, but you've got to have it because if you don't have it, you'll never progress towards any level of proficiency or fluency.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting what kind of motivations work and and what don't. Like about 10 years ago, there was a big spike in the amount of people learning Chinese and it became like this big hot thing. Like oh Chinese language of the future you got to learn it and then you see all these new products flooding into the market and the Confucius Institute very active in the United States promoting Chinese but because it's hot and because maybe you'll need it in the future is usually not a good enough motivator for most people so the result was a lot of people started but not many people followed through with it but um, the good news is if you look at the overall trend even compensating for that spike. It is going up because Chinese is getting more and more important in the world and not because maybe it'll be useful for the job, but because more and more people are coming into contact with Chinese and Chinese people, more and more people are feeling a new motivation to get started.
0: And I think it might be good to share a little bit of my story because we've touched on it a little bit, John, and I we covered your story, I think it was on the third
1: podcast. Was that right?
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. You don't even know. Okay, if you want to know John's, like, story about how he started learning Chinese, you can look at the second or third episode.
1: I've done so many podcasts and told so many stories, I have no idea what I've said. <laughs> we need someone to
0: catalog that for us, right? <laughs> We're going to be a broken record here. Yeah. Well, anyway, my story was is that I hadn't learned any Chinese at all. China was never even on my map, not even in in my wildest dreams. 2009, I was finishing a graduate degree at Purdue University. Shout out to Purdue, go Boilermakers. And I had a couple job offers. Uh, It was a tough economy at the time, but my wife and I, we just really, it sounds crazy to tell the story now, but we just really felt like, you know, maybe we wanted to move abroad. And the job offers I had had no path anywhere overseas. And it's kind of funny when I go back and think about this, I wasn't even thinking about learning another language. I was thinking about, Hey, it'd be cool to go live overseas. So we just kind of said, Hey, it's kind of now or never. So I just burned the ships and took a little time, but I just moved to China. I moved to Shanghai. I'd had no job or anything. I just moved there. Before I went though, I remember thinking that I'm going to learn Chinese. And I thought like, Oh, it'll take me about a year. I'll learn Chinese. And I didn't get so serious about it. And it was one night I had a dream and it was just like, I know, this guy, in my dream was like, you know, are, are you studying Chinese? And I'm like, no. And he's like, well, you better. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I guess. So I started, I got some, you know, a program, you know, it was like some CDs. It was kind of this multimedia program where I was learning Rosetta Chinese. Stone. No, it wasn't Rosetta Stone. I, I think it was Fluence. That's what ah, it was, Fluence. Okay. So I got this uh, program and I started learning Chinese a little bit. And when I got to China, uh, I actually had some roundabout, some connections with a guy who I lived with there. I went out there by myself first. Uh, I left my wife and kid here, and he spoke really good Chinese. During the first three months I was there, I just was like on the streets just trying to practice Chinese. But I was like really Trying hard because I didn't have a job, I needed to start to learn some Chinese, and I needed to communicate and I knew it was going to help me potentially get a job there in Shanghai. I eventually did get a job, but one thing I realized, and I think going back one of the key motivations for me to really continue on and try to really build my Chinese proficiency was that I was working for small Chinese companies there in Shanghai, and later on, I started some of my own businesses, and my kids, when we got to China they were not in school yet. And I knew that it was not likely that I was going to be in a situation to pay for them to go to like an international school. If anyone who's looking at international schools in China, Shanghai specifically, you're looking at like $25,000 a year for tuition. And I knew that was going to be a little beyond our means. And so I was expecting that we were going to have to send our kids to a local Chinese school. And so one of the key things and motivations for me was that in order to, survive and allow my kids to get education, that they were going to have to go to local school. And if that was going to happen, I was going to have to be able to support them in a way in their education. And so I took it upon myself to really focus on learning Chinese, to be able to help and support them. Now, that doesn't go into the story how I got proficiency, but that for me was a motivator, which really kept me trying to improve and progress along my Chinese.
1: Okay. But for that motivation, like, couldn't you have always just left China? Well, it was just something where we wanted to be
0: at the time. And we moved back to America since a couple of years ago. But I kind of wanted my kids also to have that experience of growing up in another culture and learning another language. All these things pulled together to really give me some motivation to learn and continue to progress. But also, I ended up starting some of my own businesses in China. I opened a bakery. It's still running. For you listeners, yes, I have a a bakery. It's a cinnamon roll bakery in Shanghai. It's in the heart of Jing'an District there near the Jing'an Temple. We do cinnamon rolls. That's it. And uh, in order to do that, my Chinese became much more important because I was just trying to open the business by myself I had to go through all the the health licensing process by myself. I even set up the business by myself. And I had some Chinese employees at at some point to help with some of these things. But largely, I had to do a lot of this by myself. So my Chinese became very important for me functioning and for my also livelihood there when I was in
1: Shanghai. Sounds like you kind of put yourself in a sink or swim situation. Yeah. And so I had to swim. (laughs) All right. Like it's kind of weird because when people ask me about my motivation, I feel like I don't have anything that's really impressive. It's like you studied to to such a high level, like you must be super motivated and have some kind of really deep, interesting motivations. And it's more like, well, I like it and I think it's interesting (laughs) Um, because I like it so much. I also chose a career path, which was completely intertwined with learning Chinese. Even now when I have advanced clients and they're focused on things like digital media marketing or finance or the psychology of child rearing. They're going into these pretty difficult topics in Chinese and I'm managing their studies. And of course, I'm reading a bunch of stuff about these topics myself. I don't know. It's just interest and combined with my career because I kind of engineered it that way. They kind of keep each other going.
0: This kind of gets back to, you have to have some sort of motivation to continue learning the language. Now, I think I would go through some other stories of people that I've heard, and maybe we haven't even covered them on a show. Uh, I did an article on our Manner Companion website, a guy, he was in his 60s, and he had started learning Chinese because he wanted to read about Tai Chi in Chinese. It was like his obsession. And now you can find some books in English, but for him, he wanted to connect with the deep cultural roots of Tai Chi, in order to do that, he said, "I I need to learn Chinese." And so, when I had gotten in touch with him, he'd been studying for a couple of years, and he had actually read through all of our graded readers, and he was moving on to higher level stuff. And I believe it'd be interesting to just reach out to him now. But that was like one of his goals.
1: I find that if you want really fluent Mandarin, it's, it's often most useful to have a goal related to communication, because um you know, if your interest is Chinese history or Chinese medicine or whatever, then you can just immerse yourself in books, get good at reading, and never really talk to anybody. But um, since most of the learners I encounter, they really want to be a fluent speaker, then it's good to have a motivation that relates to, to communication.
0: You know, you remind me of Steve Kaufman, who we had on this podcast a few episodes ago. If anyone who doesn't know Steve Kaufman, he is a internet famous polyglot. He speaks of uh, roughly twenty languages, but his real motivation for learning languages was to be able to communicate and connect with new cultures, and that was like, I mean, if you think about it, like, why are you going to go out and learn twenty languages? And he's in the seventies and he's still learning new languages, but his motivation now is like I said, go out there, experience new cultures, and connect with them in a way that you can't
1: through translation. Yeah, I think that's true for a lot of people. They don't realize that they really want to make that connection with another culture. But um, I think for a lot of us, we kind of have this inherent interest. It's, it's probably just curiosity, right? Um, because I think a lot of us know deep down that if you don't learn another language, you can't truly connect with another culture in some kind of deep, meaningful way.
0: Yeah, it's really important because if you just think about it, if there is no way to communicate, if you don't speak their language or they don't speak yours, I mean, how can you really connect? It's, it's very difficult. You can't understand someone's emotions, what they're feeling, what they're thinking or what you're even trying to do.
1: Yeah. And a lot of it is like um, if you only ever communicate with really well-educated speakers of another language, then there's this whole other section of society that you have no contact with. You have no idea what they think about, what they, what they talk about what they know about your country. And so I always found it super interesting to just talk to everyday people, people that don't speak any English and have no hope of ever really gaining proficiency in it and maybe thought that they'd never in their life even be able to communicate directly with a foreigner. Like those kinds of conversations are super rewarding. So I kind of want to flip it on its head a little bit here.
0: And we're talking about, you know, maybe, you know, what are people's motivations? Well, also something that I've seen are maybe not good motivations or maybe not sustainable motivations to learn the language. And one thing I have seen is sometimes people learning a language just to prove someone wrong, right? <laughs> you know, sometimes you can carry you through, but I have seen some people like, I'm going to learn language because they said I can't, right? Well, once that person may be out of your life or you just get over that, You know, you need to find sometimes like a better motivation. And I had talked to someone who said they started learning Chinese because, you know, someone said it was so hard and you couldn't learn it. But once they got into it. Yeah, that was me. Was that you?
1: Well, I've talked to some
0: other people, too, right?
1: (laughs) Kind of. I mean, I did find other motivations, but uh, the challenge aspect was a part of it in the beginning. You definitely.
0: But ultimately, you're going to need to find some other motivations along the way, because that probably isn't going to see you all the way through to a high level of proficiency. Yeah, I agree with that. Another thing I've seen too is learning a language because someone else is expecting you to do it. Now, this goes into a lot of other things too, is that maybe you set an own, your own expectation that I just should be able to learn this. Or if someone says, I want you to learn this. I've seen this sometimes with parents towards kids. But maybe that child or maybe you, you don't have your own intrinsic reason or motivation to do it. So you can remain disciplined. And you can remain studying and focusing on it and memorizing things. But if you never really find that own spark and that own real reason to learn, then you're really not going to get far. I mean, I've seen people in some of those situations and, you know, they just still, maybe they're not quite conversational because it's not really their interest. It's not something they really want to do. So I'm just kind of throwing out that, that you, you also, even if you're very disciplined and someone even has high expectations for you to learn the language, you're going to still need to find your own steps along the way if you really want to put that together and really connect with the language.
1: Yeah, I've seen two different kinds of uh, this kind of learner. One is the Chinese heritage learners, right? Their family insists that they learn it. And in some cases, they don't even want to, but they feel like they have to. So yeah, I sympathize with those types of learners. But there's another kind, which is really interesting, that I've come into contact with maybe once or twice in Shanghai through my business. And it's non-Chinese, you know, foreigners come to China and they live and work in China and they don't really want to learn Chinese. Like they don't have a strong interest, but they realize that they should. And so they kind of study out of guilt. And so like that's the only reason they're trying to learn Chinese, because, well, I've lived here for five years. I should learn it. Mm -hmm. Um, I find that that is the absolute worst motivation. Those people make the slowest progress hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. So, so I, I support them in wanting to learn Chinese, but it's really a good idea to work beyond the guilt and find other things that interest you about the language. You know, people, aspects of the culture whatever, because relying on guilt as a as a motivating force is just not going to work. So, John,
0: let's talk about how to find your purpose, how to find your reason and your
1: motivation to learn Chinese. Well, remember that a lot of my experience is working with uh, learners here in Shanghai. And so it's a different situation because they're in China and they can actually go out and use it. So what we always do with our personalized curricula here in Shanghai is we find something that they can learn, which ideally immediately after their lesson, they can go and use. So you don't study something that you're not going to use and you do study stuff that you're going to use immediately. Um, You focus on high frequency language language. And even if it's not the most exciting thing, if it's something that you know you can immediately use and see the results, that is super motivating. And uh, by the same token, I found that some people they come all the way to Shanghai, they're super pumped about learning Chinese, and they they just go to some random school, sign up for a Chinese course, everything seems fine, and they find that after you know two or three months, their motivation is really lagging, and 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 they blame themselves. They're like why don't I actually want to learn Chinese anymore? Like, I remember I used to want to, but now there must be something wrong with me because I'm losing interest. Even though they're blaming themselves, if you just look at their textbook and you'll see that it's a horrible, horrible textbook, you know, chapter one, going to the post office, you know, which nobody uses, um, stuff like that. And it's just a bunch of useless, outdated stuff. And they're just spending hours every day learning this stuff. And they're not learning the stuff that they could actually use in their daily lives, which they would enjoy using they would benefit from. Like that is a motivation killer. So you have good motivations and then you have ways of killing <laughs> your motivations that you really need to avoid.
0: You point out something very important here. You know, this is, we talk about, comprehensible input and making sure you're like, you're reading at the right level, you know, and there's kind of three stages of reading, you know, there's extensive reading, intensive reading, then reading pain, things that can kill that motivation. You get in that reading pain category where you're reading below 90% comprehension. Oh man. And I've seen this on sometimes polygot Reddit threads, people saying, Oh, I'm going to start learning Chinese. And they have like, you know, some classical Chinese book in the dictionary. I'm like, Oh my gosh, you're not going to get very far because that stuff that'll, that'll beat you down. And if you guys have listened to a lot of interviews that we've done here, you know, sometimes people are talking about how they went through really difficult times learning Chinese or they had a very difficult teacher or professor. And I'm like, well, how did you get through that? You know, and sometimes people got through it just by sheer will. But you got to remember for any one person who got through that just by sheer will, there's probably 10 others that just ditched out, you know, and, and decided, I, yeah. I, this is too much. I'm not going to I'm not going to go through that.
1: Totally true. And, and so motivation is actually something that can be cultivated. And I think that's often forgotten. It's like, do you have the motivation or not? If you don't, you're going to fail. Um, it's not that simple. So sometimes you find an initial motivation, something as stupid as you say, I can't do it. Well, I'll show you. But if you can find other motivations and then cultivate them or bridge to new motivations, it can be really effective. So what do I mean by cultivating motivations? If uh, maybe realistically speaking, you need Chinese for your future career, and you can't use it at all until it's advanced. It's pretty hard to just commit to years and years of study to eventually get fluent enough to use it for your job, right? So then you have to find the aspects of the language that you're actually interested in that can start working your way up in fluency and proficiency. To, to give an example, I have a client, he works in finance. For a long time, his Chinese was too low to have any kinds of conversations in the office better than, you know, ni hao. So rather than just working for years at finance, he he would find stuff that he was interested in. And it turned out he was really interested in certain uh, Chinese TV programs. And so he'd focus on that, knowing that it wasn't directly applicable to his work, but he was making overall progress. And once he got to a certain point, it was much easier to start plugging in uh, work-related vocabulary and then making the relevant progress towards his career.
0: So I think what you're talking about there is, is is maintaining that motivation and finding that motivation to continue on. But I think what it is is what you're pointing out is that we need to have little wins along the way. And John, this is something that I feel like, you know, I'm not seeing her trying to plug man or companion on this on this segment here, but you know, we try to create books that are easy for people to read. And I can't count the number of emails and comments we have from people that like, oh, I read this book and it just, I never thought I could do it. And that just became the huge motivation to continue to learn the Chinese. You know, that's a breakthrough moment for a lot of people. And so if you are kind of at that level, you know, you're ready like 150, 300 character level, you know, you try reading one of those greater readers. It doesn't have to be ours. Try another one too. You know, that can be some significant motivation to continue on but you know it's sometimes it's that you know you finally connect with someone in the language you got to get out there and you got to use it because that is one of the key things here about finding your motivation is that ultimately at the end of the day you're going to need to use your language in an effective way and by doing so and connecting either with something written spoken audiovisual whatever that is going to create experiences and moments that are memorable
1: to you and are motivating to help you continue learning Chinese, right? And it's not just about wins, but also about rewards. Like if you're if you're on a course of study where all you ever get is feedback about what mistakes you're making, then uh, yeah, you can make progress, but it's super demotivating. And just like someone who's on a on a diet, uh, occasionally lets themselves have a little dessert or a cheat day or something, you need to give yourself something in Chinese which you legitimately enjoy. The cleverest way to do it is to find some way that it's somehow related to your main goal. But even if it isn't... A Chinese girlfriend.
0: <laughs> That's the number one joke. I always say, he like in China, like, you know how to learn Chinese? Get a Chinese girlfriend. That was never an option for me because I was already married in China. But you, John, worked out pretty well.
1: Well, actually, my future wife was willing to date me in the first place because I already spoke Chinese because she didn't want to have to, like, speak English. <laughs> I, well, it didn't hurt. Yeah, it didn't hurt. So as I was saying, probably the cleverest way to do it is to reward yourself with things that you really find interesting that is somehow also related to your, your ultimate goal. But even if it's not, it's better to do something which you enjoy that's in Chinese and keeps you going than just burning out and quitting. So like, uh, you know, if your goal is to be able to talk about finance in Chinese, but you really enjoy reading Level 2, Journey to the Center of the Earth by Man Companion, then, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that.
0: Nothing wrong at all. So the point is, guys, find your motivation and keep finding new things that will motivate you. Find little rewards along the way. Those things are going to help you continue to learn the language and advance to higher levels of proficiency. So get out there and do it. You can do it.
1: You can do it, guys. There's no one answer. It's a very personal thing, but it's definitely possible. Okay,
0: John, before I was said we weren't here to like plug our books, but this segment right now, we are ready to plug our books. Okay, so... Our sponsor today is Mandarin Companion. Yay! And we are going to plug a book. Our book that we're going to plug is the one we just released last week. It is In Search of Huama, and it's a new breakthrough level book. The book is written using only 150 basic characters. And John, I, we talked about in last podcast, but I'm telling you, man, so far this is my favorite story. Really? Yeah, I like it. It's it's just it's cute. It's funny. It's light. It's you know. But there's there's the one twist ending that. Uh, I, I shouldn't say.
1: There's no twist. No twist.
0: Well, I mean, there, there's a slight <laughs> twist. But no, there's the no. one character in the book that bleeds over into the 60 year dream. So, you know, you guys can read it. And if you think about that one character between this book and that book, I mean, he does something really bad in the 60 year dream. I mean, if you kind of know what he does there. So, anyway, but I, I really like the story, though. I, it's a it's great story. It's a lot of fun.
1: And one thing that's interesting about it is that it's. Uh, it's not really a genre that we've done with any other book. I wouldn't call it fantasy exactly. It's more like a uh, magical realism. I think that's a nice little, ch- nice little change of pace. Definitely.
0: I like it. So get out there and get it. All right. Okay. Now we have rants and raves. John, what do you have for us today? A rant
1: or a rave? I have a rave, but it's kind of a weird one because uh, it's related to something I just wrote about on my blog. So if you've been to China, you know, mainland China, walk around in neighborhoods you see all this like propaganda like posters and these red banners and you know stuff on the walls and it's kind of interesting sometimes it's about like communist values or how to be a harmonious society and all this stuff and it seems kind of like um little bit i don't know overly idealistic and fairly harmless but probably ineffective propaganda but um as of i guess this month september 2019 Everything has switched over to recycling and separation of garbage. So like uh, the propaganda machine is in full force actually doing (laughs) something useful for once, I feel. Like trying to get everyone in Shanghai. uh, And I know it's happening in other parts of China, but I'm not sure how far along it is. Uh, Trying to get everyone in Shanghai to, you know, properly separate their garbage and recycle. So I, I think that's really good to see because... If China as a whole became much more focused on environmental protection, then the entire world will benefit largely. Same goes for the U.S., of course. But uh, I'm here in China and here's what I'm seeing. So it's cool.
0: That's great. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because our interview today with Teresa Munford, she talks about her time when she was back in China around just after the Cultural Revolution, after Mao died and seeing all these propaganda posters and she like learned to read all that stuff. And and so, hey, we're going to hear a little bit about that. In our interview today.
1: Well, also, if you guys want to see the examples that I'm talking about, they're on my blog on uh, Sinos Place, if you can give them a link, Jared. Okay, we'll do. We'll include that in the show notes.
0: Okay, I have a rant. Oh, no. Oh, yes. This is kind of a bit of a rant, but I got to give these guys a little credit. I just think it's kind of funny. On one of the subreddits that I check out a lot, there's a learn Mandarin, learn Chinese, things like that. There's these videos that keep getting posted. Here's here's the title one: Learn and write Chinese characters. Pútáo grape, pinyin and strokes with relaxing music and so these videos they're always like here's this character here's the stroke order and with relaxing music as somehow that's supposed to like you know help you learn Chinese I think it's a bit of my rant because it's like they're teaching like these characters that aren't that common it's like kind of common to them if you're living in China and you go out well, you know you're gonna get some grapes at the fruit stand But it's not like you even need to know the characters because you can just see them, right? I've never written Putal. John, when's the last time you've ever had the need to write Putal?
1: Can't remember a time. But, Jared, come on. Let's let's cut to the heart of the matter. What really irks you is that you practice your stroke order strictly to death
0: metal. (laughs) I do not want relaxing music. I want angry music. That's my motivation. That's my motivation right there. Totally understand.
2: My name's Teresa Munford.
0: Teresa and I first got in touch a number of years ago when she had some questions about some of our books.
2: I'm English, obviously. I suppose most of my life have been in London.
0: Last year, in 2018, I finally had the chance to meet her in London at a Chinese language conference. She was every bit as delightful as her voice leads you to believe.
2: I have been studying Chinese for 43 years.
0: If you'd studied something for 43 years, I'm sure you'd know a thing or two about it.
2: Studying in the 70s was quite different to studying now.
0: Teresa took me back to a time where everything was changing and China was waking up to the rest of the world. Be prepared to hear things you haven't heard anywhere else along with her unique perspective on learning chinese stay with us i want to hear your story about like how did you start learning chinese cuz you said you've been learning chinese for over 40 years that would take us back to when the the 80s 70s, the 70s, the 70s
2: 80s in fact i realized that this week is the 40th anniversary of when i first went to china
0: oh really yeah
2: yeah in 1979
0: That was like the open door policy was right then, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. We were sort of... So I started learning Chinese the month that Chairman Mao died, though I didn't know much about him at the time. You know, that was university course in Durham in the north of England. None of us had done... You know, there were probably about 10 of us in the class. None of us had done Chinese before. We'd all done European languages for our high school A-levels. So we did three years there, with no opportunity to go to China, obviously.
0: I want to know, why did you start studying Chinese? I mean, you said there was even 10 people in your class. I I imagine very few people were learning Chinese at that time. Why did you start studying and how did you get that opportunity?
2: The joke that I always say it was to annoy my father. (laughs) Because (laughs) I'd always enjoyed languages and I used to like Latin But he said, oh, you can't do Latin A-level. It's a waste of time, waste of time. What are you going to use a dead language for? So I thought, right, I won't do Latin A-level, but I'll get back at him when I go to uni and I'll do something so obscure. And ironically, he's just turning 90 now and he says, actually, that wasn't a bad choice of university language, was it, (laughs) in the end? (laughs) I, and so I think my generation, we were a bit um, embarrassingly swept away by the Cultural Revolution.
0: How so? It's a terrible
2: thing to say. Well, you know, we were all young and we were, you know, there wasn't really much media, but you read about the young people of China overthrowing the old and everything. And um, it was before the truth came to out about it i w- we were all i think we were all quite embarrassed when we got to China, and our teachers told us what was really going on, so we were a little bit culture evolution babies, so we weren't being attracted by you know um it wasn't dragons and lanterns it was Ch- chairman Mao hmm. so you know a lot of stuff about what was going on in China it was quite interesting to my generation mm
0: mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so I think that was what did it, and also just this, you know, this strange place that mm-hmm. had no, you know, that was so different. Yeah, I, w- I decided I wanted to do it. I mean, you never know, do you? I mean, it's always like I notice this with my own students; some are just grabbed by China for whatever reason. So I, st- I, the funny thing, of course, is that at uni we did a very, very traditional course. I mean, we used Fantasia for the first year at least and the, the second year we did nothing but classical so we were composing sentences in classical oh well, really the irony being i loved it i loved i was probably the sort of latin in me but it meant we had a very very bookish education in it
0: describe what was that like for you he says kind of a bookish education so what how were they trying to teach it to you back where you were at the time
2: Uh, Very, very traditionally. If I said that I don't think I met a native speaker in three years, no, I tell like one, we had one lady who came who was a native speaker, because you've got to remember in those days, the Chinese speaking community in England were all Cantonese, you know, so although there were a lot of Chinese living in England, they were Hong Kongers. Oh, okay. So you just, you know, and China itself was so closed. We probably maybe had one delegation come from the embassy to the uni. But you just didn't encounter spoken Mandarin. And our teachers were all non-native speakers. Yeah, I was thinking about this. They were also the in-between generation. Some of their teachers had been missionaries in China. Oh, really? You know how there were a lot of Westerners in the early part of the century with deep roots in China, be it Shanghai or Hong Kong, and often very fluent speakers. Uh And then you had this period in the middle of the 20th century where if you did Chinese, chances were you weren't ever going to go there. Uh So, for example, one of the most inspiring teachers we had was Archie Barnes. And he was such a good classicist. I mean, he wrote. He's one of his books you can still get, which is called "Learning Chinese Through Poetry," and he sort of managed to instill in us a, a, this amazing love of Chinese poetry. You know, and considering we were a bunch of sort of rabble-rousing nineteen-year-olds, <laughs> you know, he it 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 always amazes me how. You know, we were captivated by his lessons on that. And he'd have us translating sentences into Chinese, like, you know, the army of Qin approached the city walls, you know. (laughs) But the downside was when we rocked up to China, you know, I didn't understand a thing that was being said to me. Nowadays, a lot of people say, well, if you're learning Chinese, How is it when you learn to read? Well, we did it the other way. So in three years, we were reading Ming manuscripts, and we read the entire, oh, gosh, dull stuff like Mao's Forum on Art and Literature from Yen'an. That was a set text. So we could read that, but we couldn't have asked for a cup of tea. So it was a very bookish education. And, of course, the trouble was when we arrived in Beijing, Everybody used to arrive. We were British council and we'd go to the Yuyanxuan. You'd meet up with all these other students, mainly from European countries. We were the first year the Americans came, but they tended to be postgrads. Mm -hmm. So we had American tungxuan, but that was the first year that they had come in because it was after Nixon, presumably. Oh, wow. We would arrive and we'd I did a, um, about a month in Beijing and everybody was desperate to be fun paid down to universities because the uh, Institute was, you know, very it, well, there were too many foreigners in the Institute, basically. So they would do an exam to see if your level was high enough to go to a university. And of course, the exam was all written.
0: Oh, really?
2: So, So it was easy for me. <laughs> But they didn't realize that I couldn't actually understand what anything was being said. Hmm. So I passed the exam. I was really delighted because then I was sent down to Nanjing. But as soon as I got there, I found myself surrounded by other foreign students who had had much more practical educations. So they were you know, very much more fluent. You know what it's like if you're learning a language and you're with people who speak it better than you, and you let them do all the talking. Mm -hmm. So I had to sort of consciously travel by myself to make sure that I was actually using it.
0: What did you do at that time then to kind of help your spoken Chinese improve? And and what what are some of the things you did?
2: I don't think I did enough, actually, because it was my comfort zone. I opted to do classical Chinese, Oh. So my Tingli must have been okay because I was obviously sitting in classes and knowing what was going on. But I was, you know, my comfort zone was sitting with the um, textbooks doing more of the old stuff. Also, you've got to remember that actually in those days, it was very hard to have a social life in China with Chinese people of our age group. Why was that? Well, people were still a bit nervous. you know, if you think about it, only a few years before, if you'd had foreign friends, you would have been politically suspect. Hmm. Also, you weren't allowed into people's houses. You know, it would have, I didn't step into one Chinese person's house in a year oh. because it just wouldn't have been allowed. We did hang out with Chinese students, but not that much because there was such a big gap Between our life experiences, you know, I very very much envy people going to China now because, you know, you can talk about shared music tastes. There's so many things that young people share globally, but it just wasn't there. And it could be very isolating.
0: So what sort of interaction did you have with other Chinese students of your age or of any age, really?
2: Um, We had Chinese roommates, which was good. But they were very, very shy of us. And the age gap was huge. So we were sort of 21 growing up in the West, you know, the sort of old hippie generation. And our roommates who were, say, 20-year-old Chinese had lived very, very sheltered lives it was, it was just the last year of the worker-peasant-soldier students, which was good in a way because there were more minorities. We knew a lot of Uyghurs.
0: That sounds like you encountered almost like a very different world to what you had ever experienced up to that point.
2: Oh, yes, yeah. I mean, if you think about how little global travel people did in those days. I mean, I'd been to Spain. <laughs> I certainly hadn't been to Asia it was hugely hugely different i mean hugely exciting i mean i adored my time there and really loved it and the the best th- the best way to speak chinese was to travel because that was when people opened up to you we went out to xinjiang and we were you know up to xi'an i even went up to yennan and places and you'd just sit on trains and chat and chat well, that was really the time when you just got to use your Chinese. Interestingly, somebody said that the big difference now is that people sit on trains and they've got their tablets or their iPhones and nobody <laughs> talks. Yeah. Whereas, you know, you'd sit there and you'd have a bag of um, snacks or something and a packet of Great Goose Pagoda cigarettes and you'd you'd be exchanging cigarettes and chatting and you know it was it was really uh, really the way to chat and and people would open up to you then they wouldn't be worried about oh dear we're talking to a foreigner i mean the place where people went to really learn chinese back then was taiwan so friends that went to taiwan you could immediately you know it was a much different society it was you could immediately interact and socialize and everything
1: well, I'd
0: like to know, Teresa, you, you went to China, you had this experience. Uh, what was kind of a turning point for you in your Chinese where you felt like you started to gain maybe a higher level of proficiency? And why did you also decide to stick with learning Chinese?
2: That's a good question. I don't think I ever thought of dropping it. I was, I was really interested in the history. So while I was in Nanjing, I applied to do postgrad work and I got... A grant to study a PhD in Australia, because Australia then was positioning itself as part of Asia. So it was being quite generous in scholarships for Chinese studies. So I went back to the UK for a bit and suddenly got this offer to go to the Australian National University. So I did four years there as a graduate student with a long trip to China in the middle. I was... <laughs> I, you know, the um, joke about the world's most useless PhDs. I think mine ranks amongst that. Um, <laughs> it was on tenth century BC burial practices. <laughs> <laughs> I had, in my naivety, I had gone thinking that I would discuss because if I don't know if you ever remember the old Marxist form of Chinese history, you know, the stages. Did you ever encounter that? No, I, that I haven't.
0: Tell me about that. It,
2: I mean, it was so standard. It was just basically, it goes from matriarchy to patriarchy and all this. So I was convinced that, you know, I could find the matriarchy. Uh
0: huh.
2: <laughs> it was the 70s, you know. Yes, yeah. So I, w- I was fascinated by what you could find out using the very early script. The big thing throughout that part of my learning Chinese was the lack of technology. If you can imagine learning to read Chinese in the 70s, we had the Matthews Dictionary, which was uh, an old missionary dictionary. Fantizze, of course. You know, my copy, The Spine, is just broken to bits. I shall never part with it. But you, you literally every word had to look up by looking up the radical and counting the strokes. And then once you'd found it in the traditional characters... You then had your little notebook with the simplified, And then they brought out what we called the Green Dictionary, just the year I went to Nanjing, which was a proper modern Chinese dictionary. It was just so exciting. It actually had the simplified characters and it had a pinion index. So we didn't have to look at it. We we even had um, charts with all the different Romanizations. So you'd see a word in one book. You'd have to find out what romanization system they were using and then look it across to find out what it might be in Pinyin. So everything took a lot longer. Anyway, thinking about the early characters nowadays, you can take a character and go on a website and it'll show you every occurrence of that character in the bronzes and the oracle bones. You know, And there just wasn't that there, so I floundered around for a while, and then realised that what was quite interesting was the way that anthropology was being adapted to archaeology. So the you know looking for seeing if you could spot kinship patterns with burial practices and all that. So I kind of applied that, but it's not one of those PhDs that have moved the frontiers of knowledge <laughs> further than a few inches. But it was fun, and it gave me four really good years in Australia. And a trip to China, and it improved my Chinese, of course. The dark secret for about three or four years while I was teaching it was I still couldn't distinguish the tones, and I literally had oh, really? I had to sit because where was the technology to practice?
0: Mm, mm. You know,
2: you just couldn't. So I used to sit on my commute to um, the school with Chinese Pod on my iPod by then I had one, late late 2000s, and just listen and write down what the tone was (laughs) and on and on and on. And and suddenly it was like a light going on my head and I heard the tones for the first time, which was very good actually as a teacher because I used to say to my students, especially in a class of students learning Chinese, half of them would say, ah, tones, I can hear them. And half would have exactly my reaction, which was to go, I just don't hear it. And I would be able to say to them, look, that light will go on in your head. Everybody takes a different pace. I am i can't sing. So I always think it's probably linked to that kind of the way you hear things. So it was only when I had technology that I could hack away at those things like tones. And it was remarkable when I suddenly... <laughs> because people used to say to me oh you sound like you're from Shandong I said why is that they said because your tones are consistent but they're consistently wrong (laughs) so uh, it was interesting on that
0: well I think it's great for people to hear that because we talk about tones on this podcast quite a bit and some people do feel like they can't get it but I think it's interesting to hear your story because you didn't really have the exposure to a lot of the spoken Chinese and therefore you didn't really pick up the tones. And it was just, once you got enough of that exposure to it, then it started to click.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, the, the question about what would you do otherwise, how would you go back and do something different? And my thing would have been, I should have just listened and listened and listened more. I think you lose heart on the areas that you're, you know what I mean? You, Mm -hmm. You lose confidence. You think, ah, I'm just never going to get that. So you work on your other skills. So I was really confident with the reading. So that was my thing. And nowadays, of course, you know, you can learn those simultaneously. And also there's so much more understanding now about the neuroscience of learning languages. And also the media was so dull then, you know. You just didn't want to watch movies in China because they were all, you know, you got tired of revolutionary peasants. <laughs> the radio it was as dull as dishwater, you know. And I mean, we had the uh, loudspeakers blaring away in the background, but, you know, once you've heard revolutionary songs a certain number of times. And the funny thing is going back to China about two years ago with this Resurgence of some old style propaganda, I suddenly realized that all the banners around, you know, with Xi Jinping's sort of quotes, were suddenly really familiar for, to me. Oh, really? It was back in my comfort zone of reading, because that was the kind of sloganeering we'd been weaned on. Whereas if you, you look at sort of racy adverts and things like that, that's not language that I, that wasn't the sort of language we ever encountered
0: i kind of like to hear a little bit from your perspective, because you, you also taught Chinese for quite a while. What are some of the big changes you've seen in how Chinese was taught back from the time when you learned it to the way a lot of people are learning Chinese today?
2: Well, there's been huge changes even in the time I was teaching it, especially uh, my area of it was high school, what we'd call secondary school Chinese. When I started teaching it, the pedagogy was still very old fashioned. You know, your colleagues who were teaching French and German and Spanish, their textbooks, the pedagogy, everything was so, so different. Partly because a lot of teachers of Chinese in schools were actually native speakers who'd gone to school in in China, so that they had a very, you know, the sort of more chalk and talk approach to teaching. And so over the last, say, 10 or 15 years, that has changed hugely. You know, you still do get occasions where teachers are teaching in a way that their students aren't responding to because it's just not the way Western kids learn.
0: Can you describe what some of those things you see or some ways that people are teaching?
2: One problem, one big problem, I think, is that we all forget how hard it is to start to learn to read Chinese. I did a lot of work on teaching dyslexics Chinese. I was quite interested in that because I had some dyslexic students. And people used to say, oh, no, dyslexic is fine, reading Chinese because it's all pictures. And I'm thinking, you know, it doesn't sound right to me. (laughs) Um, And so I did some stuff on that. It was really interesting because it got me reading about the neuroscience of reading. I don't know if you're familiar. There's a fabulous book. It was an American academic Um, Marianne Wolfe, called Proust and the Squid. The title is that way because Proust, you know, the writer, apparently one of the paragraphs, or probably knowing him, chapters and chapters in his books, describes the joy of learning to read. And the squid, because apparently when they first did neuroscience, the squid has one neuron or something. But it talks about the science of reading and how reading is not a natural human activity. Hmm. You know, it's actually, you're making these new neural pathways. Mm -hmm. You're connecting the semantic with the phonic, with the sight. So there's lots more going on in the brain. And it's no wonder, you know, that they, it took the human race thousands and thousands of years to go from the first marks on a Babylonian tablet or on an oracle bone to kind of reading Greek Mm -hmm. writing early Chinese. And so your brain is doing that when you're learning to read. And for an alphabetic language, it's going to be faster in a way, but you've still got to make that change. And that's why we've all forgotten. But when somebody first wrote an A on a blackboard for us, or our parents showed us an A, that would have been a squiggle. So it was quite interesting. You know, you have to... Bring that right back when you're teaching people to read Chinese. And you've got to remember that that is such a squiggle to them still. we Because we had a very bookish training, we would literally be going back to our dorm rooms and learning maybe 100 characters a week. and There was no technology, so we were having to learn to write it by hand and using paper flashcards. And I distinctly remember the day that I staggered from my dorm room down to eat with you know, in the canteen with my friends, and my knife and fork were lying across the plate. And I remember looking down, and I I read it as a character, probably something simple like "ren" or something. (laughs) And now, afterwards, when I was reading about the neuroscience of reading, I thought that must have been the moment when those neural pathways started to kick in. Hmm. You know, with teaching reading, I always say everybody gets there You've just got to keep at it. You've got to make those pathways. In fact, there's quite a neat quote from Mementius where he says, a path through the mountain isn't a path until you've walked up and down it lots of times. Mm. And I think what often happens is that because teachers, including non-native speakers teachers, because reading Chinese is so, that's kicked in, that it's very easy to forget just how hard that is initially and also, how, if you have too much pinyin written with the character, that your eye will go to the pinyin. You know, there were early mm-hmm. textbooks, which just had pinyin everywhere. And you could have a student who thought they got to book two. And you realize that as a, as a reader of Chinese, your eye goes to the characters because it's much, much easier. But if, you, if you're set it, starting out, your eye never goes to the character, goes to the pinyin.
0: Yep. I wrote an article about that. It's gone quite wide on the internet i'll call it the pinyin over characters the crippling crutch
2: yeah totally the, the very first textbooks that were around when i started teaching there was one that the brits had brought out the british council brought out in conjunction with confucius institute called Kui Le hang you, and that was all pinyin and you know i remember taking over a class that had been using that book and the kids said oh we're book 2 and then as soon as i removed the pinion they had no idea what they were doing hmm. and i realized that they just ambled along so i think it's important to have pinion i think it's absolutely vital because nowadays if you want to be literate you need to be inputting in pinion so i but i do think you've got to you've got to make that transition and again you've got to understand that it takes a while um you know you'll have students saying oh I don't think I'll ever get characters. I just can't do it. But I used to say, you'll get it. You just have to keep going at it.
0: So, Teresa, what advice would you give to someone who's learning Chinese today?
2: Listen to loads. Just keep listening. Enjoy the media because there's so much interesting stuff. The other thing I think, actually, and this is what um, Mandarin Companion does well, too. I think some of the media... The context is familiar. It's like the way Mandarin Companion uses stories that the Western reader is probably familiar with, but places it in a different cultural context. And for example, you know, I'm a great fan of these TV shows like Sing China, which is such a familiar film, Matt. It's the voice, you know, the, do you know mm, the one?
0: Yeah. Or
2: um, Britain's got talent, so there's China's got talent. So you're watching a format that's really, really familiar, so it doesn't matter that if you're only getting 5% of what they're saying and then suddenly you realise you're getting 10% of what they're saying and suddenly you realise you're getting 20% of what they're saying. Whereas if you, if you take something that the whole context is alien, You know, it's just, you've just got to, it's going to be much harder because you're not quite sure what they're going to be saying. The other thing that I've never done yet, and I'd like to, is this recommendation that you choose somebody's voice, a native speaker whose voice you like, and imitate that to get your accent good. Oh, really? It was a bit of a problem back in the day because it was very hard as a a young female to hear voices that you would want to imitate because either you had that really terrifying propaganda voice that would be blaring from the speakers (laughs) or this very, very cutesy voice that was kind of fashionable with, you know, our age group of girls. And I I was thinking, I was watching Sing China the other day and I thought, now, Na Ying is so cool. She's younger than me. She's probably about... 20 years younger than me but I thought now there's a voice I'd like to copy but I haven't tried it yet but you you just have, you know, I don't know if you've heard that about imitating a voice
0: No I haven't heard, but that sounds very that sounds like a, a great idea
2: You know who, um, I was reading actually, um, oh ambition and faith in New China or something it's a guy who he was, you might remember the author, he was one of the American papers correspondent there in the 2010 around there
0: Eric a- 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 Osmos maybe?
2: Yes that's right And he, in that book, I'm just reading at the moment, he talks about, he meets this guy that, when it was trendy to do that shouted English, shouted English. Oh, yes, yeah, the
0: shouting Chinese, yeah.
2: Yeah, and he, the guy that he's chatting to a lot, has been learning, hearing catchphrases in English by different voices and just learning to imitate them. Oh, that's right, because he was laughing because he's saying that this guy had suddenly picked up he really spoke like somebody from the southern states of the of the USA. You know, it's a bit <laughs> like I suppose if you go and study in a place like that. So maybe actually I should be looking for somebody from Shandong with a really cool accent. <laughs> and then I could combine my bad my improving tones.
0: I think, Teresa, this has been really interesting to get like your perspective on learning Chinese. A lot of us learners today, we don't have that historical perspective. And I I think it's really interesting to hear about even back in China around the Cultural Revolution and and how that's really changed. And so I'd really like to hear from you about what is your favorite thing about Chinese?
2: I still love reading it. And the funny thing is, when I was 19, you get overwhelmed. You think, oh, my God, every time I learn a new character, there's more to come. And, you um, you know, your friends that are studying Spanish and German and French are reading the great masters in literature in those languages. And you're sort of still plowing through the the Red Brigade of Women was one of our textbooks, which was all well and good. But the funny thing is now I'm over 60. I think this is really nice because I can go on learning characters till I'm 80 and there still be more to learn. So to keep senility at bay, <laughs> I still very much enjoy the sensation of learning new characters. A bit sad, isn't it?
0: Makes sense to me.
2: But I do like, I mean, the, the media, the, the media from China is now so much more interesting and the novels and everything like that. It's just, there's a lot more to read and to listen to.
0: An endless world to explore.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely
0: you have been listening to the you can learn chinese podcast help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends classmates teachers cousins bus driver tailor, hairdresser financer and that one guy named kyle you can subscribe on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and please write us a review so we know how we're doing you can find us on facebook and at mandarincompanion.com apologies to john cena we just ran out of time the You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself. Yep, just me, Jared Turner. I'd like to thank Teresa Munford and my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Paston. See you next time.